So we're continuing on this evening through uh, uh, this letter that, that Paul wrote. Uh, and where we find ourselves this evening, we're really back at the beginning. <laughs> so we're picking up a theme that we've already covered. This, this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, I'm realizing is a little bit like a figure of eight. So we go around one loop, then we get back to the start, and then we go around another loop and we, we get back to the start. So at the beginning, you may remember, we were thinking about false teaching and the contrast between the truth of the gospel and what the false teachers were saying. And then we went around this loop of looking at the impact that the gospel should make on us, how it should make us godly as a church family, as men and women, those leaders in the church. And now we've come back right around the first loop and we are back at the center point, which is this contrast between false teaching and false religion religion, and, and the truth of the gospel and what true godliness looks like. And then what we do, we move back around the bottom loop and we look again at godliness, how the gospel should impact the church. And as we draw to the end of the letter, we get back to look at the difference between false teaching and the truth of the gospel. So this evening, we're, we're looking at this contrast at the crossover point. We're looking at the contrast between uh, true godliness and, and false religion. Someone has said, and you've probably heard this, uh, that the difference between Christianity and all the other religions in the world is two letters. It's the letters N-E. <laughs> so all the religions of the world say do, do, do. They're about what you do or, or don't do. They're about following certain rules and avoiding certain uh, behaviors. But the root of Christianity is not do, 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 but it's done. So there's two letters, N-E, D-O-N-E. The root of the Christian faith is about what Jesus Christ has done and about what he's achieved for us. I know that's not something new for most of you tonight, but it's something that we must just keep tight hold of there's always a danger that we lose that distinction between doing and and done and this evening we're going to see that that sharp contrast between false religion and and true godliness so let's look first of all at true godliness and we're going to see two things about true godliness from verses 14 to 16 of chapter 3 The first thing we see about true godliness is why it matters. And the second thing that we see is is where it comes from. So why it matters, verses 14 and 15. It seems from this letter that Paul is wanting to go and see these churches in Ephesus. He's particularly wanting to go and see Timothy and have a chat with him. But he, he doesn't know if he's going to be delayed or not. And so he writes this letter on. So that if he's delayed, he says, you will know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and foundation, or if you have a different translation, buttress of the truth. For Paul, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ, the conduct of the church, both us as individuals and us as a body, the conduct of the church really matters. It's really important. It's so important that he thinks he might be held up, so he has to write this letter to Timothy. How we live through the week and what we do when we get together, it matters. Why, why does it matter? Well, it matters because of what the church is. 
True godliness matters because of what the church is. We have two descriptions of the church there in verse 15, 14 and 15. The first description of the church is that we are the household of God. That could mean the householders in a, a building. Elsewhere, Paul writes about us being the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But it's more likely householders in uh, family or, or back in, in the day, they would have had a household with servants and different people attached uh, to, the, to the family. It was a, it was a group of, of people. We are the family of God. We are the place where God lives. This is not the house of God, this building. We are the household of God, the people. If you visit someone's home, you get an idea of to what that person is like. You look at the kind of ornaments that are up. You look around at the clutter and you decide whether they're a, a, an organized person or whether they're a kind of spontaneous person. Uh, you see maybe some of the stuff that's lying around and you get an idea of the hobbies that the the person likes to do. If you spend time with the people who live in that home, you'll get an idea whether the home is a happy place or it's a place of strife. Being in, being in someone's home, uh, you get a window into what that person is like. And we are the, the household of God. <laughs> we are the household of God. So when people spend time with us as individuals and together, they should get a little window into what God is like. That's why our conduct matters. Our conduct matters also because not only we're the household of God, but it says we're the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The word church just means assembly, kind of gathering of people. We don't really use that word assembly very much, do we, anymore, except maybe at school. You have morning assemblies and you all get together in, in the hall. But we are the assembly of the living God. We are the people that the living God has, has gathered together. And he's gathered us together with a purpose. That we may be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We've mentioned those two words already in weeks past. Pillar, they're the things here that hold the building up. The buttresses, they're the things that if you go outside, you see them sticking out from the wall at intervals. They're the things that keep the walls up. And so we as the church, God has assembled us, the living God has assembled us so that we may be a pillar and buttress of the truth, so that we may hold up and hold out the truth. That's why true godliness matters because of who we are. We're God's household, and we've got this purpose of holding out the, the truth. And we've said before that when our lives and our actions don't fall into line with the truth of the gospel, that causes, causes problems. I remember when I was at primary school and we were going on a school trip. And looking back, school trips must have been a real headache for the teachers. The kids in Caleb's class went down to London for the day recently. I thought, man, that must be a real hard day for the teachers from seven till nine with 30 children in the middle of London and on the train. And I remember the teacher would usually give you a talking to before you went on your school trip. You'd get in a line, maybe the bus was waiting there, and she'd give you a talking to about how you should behave. And you'd be all there in your uniform, and she'd point out the fact 
Remember, you're representing Newton Bluecoat School. <laughs> it's there right on your jumper. If you're naughty, everyone knows you, you belong to Newton Bluecoat School. And true godliness and our conduct matters because of who we are. We are the household of God, the assembly of the living God. And what we do as individuals and as a church will either adorn and make beautiful and make credible the gospel message or it will obscure the gospel message. What we say will either make plain the truth of Jesus and who he is or it will obscure that truth. So that's why true godliness matters. Where does true godliness come from? Where does true godliness come from? I wonder what you think about when I say the word godliness. Or if I describe someone as being a really godly person, what would you, what would you think? I think often we think of godliness in terms of conduct, and we've been thinking of it in, that, in those terms this evening probably think in terms of morality. If you found a book in a bookshop that said that six steps to being a godly man or a godly woman, you'd maybe expect to open that book and it talk about the way you behave, the, 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 the things you spend your time doing, the disciplines uh, that you give yourselves to. There might be pointers on how you could be a better person. Some of those ideas about godliness we were looking at last week when we thought about leadership and what you would expect from a, a godly leader. Actually, if we just equate godliness with morality or godliness with our outward behavior, we're missing something. We're missing something that Paul wants us to see here in verse 16. If godliness is just about right behavior, then verse 16 won't make much sense to us. The root of godliness is not just outward behavior, Godliness is about a right relationship with God. The opposite to being godly is being godless, being without God. So godliness begins with a, a right relationship with God. And of course, that right relationship with God will have a big impact on how we live. It will have a big impact on the way we conduct ourselves. But the root of godliness is a, a right relationship with God. And that comes out in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Or if you have an NIV Bible, it will say the mystery from which true godliness springs. And then we have this six-line poem. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. So the mystery of godliness is, is nothing to do with us. <laughs> It doesn't begin with us and our behavior. Can you see that? Paul says, this is the mystery of godliness. And then there's this six-line poem all about Jesus and what he has achieved. Godliness is not primarily about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. Let's look at this uh, poem. So we get six lines. The first line, he was manifest in the flesh. That's talking about Christ coming into creation, becoming a man. We thought about that this morning, didn't we? The word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. 
It's the ultimate affirmation of the goodness of this creation. And then there's line two. He was vindicated by the Spirit. What does this refer to? It refers to Jesus' resurrection after he'd been crucified and scorned and mocked as a criminal. At his resurrection, he's vindicated by a watching world as he's raised from the dead. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing about the gospel, about God's son. He says, God's son was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The vindication of, of Jesus. And then line three, he was seen by angels. This is a reference to the first Easter morning at the garden tomb when those angels announced he is not here. He is risen. Those first three lines about what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago when he walked this earth. And then we have these next three lines. And these are about his rule and his ministry from heaven. As he sends his spirit to empower his church. So line four, proclaimed among the nations. We see the story of that proclamation unfolding in Acts, doesn't, don't we? As it starts in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's proclaimed among the nations. And then line five, he's believed on in the world. We've seen this virus spreading, haven't we? All, all over the world. But long before this virus spread, the gospel has spread all over the world. And Jesus has been believed on in, in all sorts of places. China, India, America, Canada, New Zealand, Brazil, Cape and Ray. <laughs> All sorts of places. Jesus has been believed upon in the world. Many people have come to place their confidence in Jesus because of this good news message. And then there's line six. Taken up to glory. Jesus rules from this place of glory and exaltation. He ascended to his father, to, to the right hand, to the place of all authority. One day we read in 2 Thessalonians that he will return in glory. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This is the story of Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his great salvation being worked out in the world. And this is what Paul says is the mystery of godliness. This is where godliness springs from. He uses that word mystery, I think, probably because that was the word that the false teachers were using. They loved to talk about secrets and special knowledge. We know that from the end of the book. But we can see that the mystery of godliness is, is now really not a mystery at all. It was once a mystery, but now it's been revealed for the whole world to see. It's an open secret. And you know what that means? That means we don't need this evening five steps to godliness. We don't need seven keys to spiritual enlightenment. We've got the truth about Jesus and that's where godliness springs from. True religion is not about pilgrimages or spiritual disciplines or keeping the rules. True religion and true godliness is about knowing Jesus, loving him, 
and trusting him. So I want to remind us this evening, let's not let anyone throw us off track. Let's not let anyone distract us uh, from our Lord and Savior. Jesus is the only source of godliness, and godliness grows as we gaze on his glory and as we are slowly but surely transformed into that same glory. That's where godliness comes from. That's true godliness. What about the false religion? I want us to see the sharp difference this evening between that true godliness and, uh, and false religion. First of all, where it comes from. Imagine you're in Ephesus. You're in one of these local churches in Ephesus. We know there's this problem with false teaching going on. I wonder how you picture that problem in your mind's eye. What do you picture it looking like, the problem of false teaching in Ephesus? Here's what it would not look like. It would not look like someone standing up on a Sunday morning with two horns growing out their head and some fangs. They would not have a tattoo across their head saying, false teacher. They would not stand up and say, what I'm about to tell you this evening is a pack of lies. That's not what it would look like. It would probably look something like this. It'd probably be someone that you knew, probably seemed like a nice guy. They may be passionate about what they're speaking about. They'd seem to be well-informed. They might communicate well. As we come to these verses at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul is wanting to give us some glasses so that we can see this false teaching for what it really is. So let me read verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. When Paul says in, in the latter times, I think as we go through the book, it's clear that he's not referring to some later time. He's talking about what's happening already in Ephesus. Remember, we read that passage last week from Acts where Paul was on the beach with those Ephesian elders and he was warning them about wolves that would come in, wolves that would even kind of grow up from among them who would, who would want to devour the flock. Paul, under the uh, influence of the Spirit, already prophesied that this was going to happen. And now he's saying what I told you would happen in the latter times is, is happening. And people in the church are abandoning their faith in Jesus because of these false teachers. And we're to see this evening where this false teaching originates. He says there it's from the deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. That's the origin of false religion. Evil spirits and the teaching, deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. As you look around the world, you don't even have to look around the world, just look around our community, but you'll see all sorts of ideas about religion and God and spirituality and how we get to God, how life works. But many of those ideas have nothing to do with Jesus. And Paul says, all that kind of false religion, it comes from below. 
It's driven by deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. If you go into a bookshop and you go to the, the section on the wall marked religion slash spirituality, you'll see all sorts of titles, all sorts of authors about giving their giving their opinions about how to find inner peace and how to connect with the divine. If those things have nothing to do with Jesus, the origin of such teaching is deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. This teaching comes from the realm of spiritual evil. We, we often miss that, don't we? We often miss that, and here's why I think we miss it. We miss it because it comes through people, people like us. That's why we miss it. We don't miss that the origin is evil because it comes through people like us. And Paul writes about those people in verse 2. To deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a description of these teachers. When Paul writes there about seared conscience, it's like someone whose conscience has been so violated that it stops working properly. It's a bit like if you take a piece of elastic and you stretch it and you stretch it and you stretch it, and eventually it just loses its elasticity. That's what it's like to have a, a seared conscience. Or maybe like someone who, who, who's, who's burnt uh, some skin and the nerves supplying that piece of skin stop working properly. They're either firing too much or the patch goes numb. A seared conscience. It's not a very complimentary description, is it? Insincere liars and the seared conscience. Again, imagine if a salesman comes to your door and he begins a sales pitch like this. Hi, I'm a salesman. I'm an insincere liar and I've got a seared conscience. Would you like to buy some of my products, you'd probably say, no, no, thank you very much. I think Paul is wanting to uncover the truth about these false teachers. They may seem very nice. They may, may sound plausible. But the reality is, is that they're insincere liars and they have a seared conscience. Here's why I think we must see the clear distinction between true godliness and this false religion. When we see it, this distinction, one comes from heaven, one comes from hell, it's obvious that we shouldn't mix the two. We shouldn't mix the two and try and get a hybrid. Because on, on the surface, false teaching doesn't always look deceptive or demonic. It sometimes comes from people who appear respectable. I think in churches, there's a great temptation to mix these two. And in fact, we, I think we see them being mixed all the time. It's so subtle. Ideas just seep into the church. Ideas that we don't find in our Bibles. Ideas that are disconnected to, to the Lord Jesus and the truth becomes cluttered and confused and reinterpreted with different rules and traditions and ideas. It happens so easily. It's happened over and over again in the history of the church and we're going to see a, a, an example of it happening here in Ephesus in these last verses. 
I think this is a warning for us this evening about what we listen to and what we read. What we listen to and what we read. When we're listening to someone teaching the Bible, I want us to ask ourselves a question. Is this person exalting the Lord Jesus and calling me to come and trust him? Or is this person majoring on, on something else? some activity or behavior or something that seems to have no bearing to Jesus at all? Is this book helping me see the truth of God's word or is it bringing in ideas from somewhere else and muddy in the waters? Two questions that we should ask ourselves. So that's false, false religion where it comes from. As we move towards the end, I want us to, to see why it's so dangerous. Why, why is false religion so dangerous? It's dangerous because it hides the truth about God. It hides the truth about God. That's why it's dangerous. So if you want to look at verse 3, we have an example of some of the false teaching that was going around in Timothy's day. And as we look at this, it shows us how easily false teaching can come into the church and kind of distort the truth about God. So who, what were these uh, insincere liars and people with a seared conscience teaching? Well, it says in verse 3 that they were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So these false teachers are coming and started teaching these rules. <laughs> no marriage and avoid certain foods. This teaching is called asceticism. It's about treating your body uh, harshly. Uh, it's, it puts forth like the kind of the spirit is good and, uh, and the kind of physical world is bad. Therefore, we should treat our bodies harshly and, and master them by denying ourselves pleasure. A common stream of teaching in, in Paul's day. And so they were saying, if you want to be really spiritual really godly, you must not eat X, Y, Z. If you want to be really godly, you must not marry. And if marriage is out, that means there will be no sex. Now, marriage and sex has to do with the, the physical, as is eating, physical. And so they're denying these physical things within creation. It may be that Part of this was a reaction to what was going on in Ephesus. So there was lots of idol worship and fertility cults that involved feasting and all sorts of immorality. Maybe the people in the church just wanted to kind of put these safeguards in place. Okay, we'll put those, they're all bad, so we're just going to avoid marriage and we're going to avoid those foods. But can you see the problem that happens when they introduce these rules? These prohibitions undermine the gospel. It draws a dividing line between the good God and his good creation. So verses 3 and 4. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For ev everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Creation is good because it comes from a good God. 
And there's a, a goodness in this world that is to be received by believers just with thankful hearts. So for the Christian, eating and marriage, far from being a hindrance to godliness, becomes windows through which we can revel in God's goodness and they can draw our hearts to worship. Think about eating. Eating's just part of our everyday life, isn't it? Most of us eat, what, two, three, four times a day. It's something that's just ingrained in our, in our existence. We must eat if we want to live. And the one who knows the truth about God knows that God is good. He also knows that God is the good God who, who gives us this good, good food. And so that's why many of us have this habit of thanking God before we pray. Because we recognize it's God who gives us every good gift. I think our, our eating goes even deeper than that, than simple thanks to God for the goodness that he gives us. Maybe you've not thought of it this way, but eating is, is really an act of worship. Let me try and explain. Last week, last Sunday night, we were thinking about Jesus being the, the bread of life. Jesus takes this idea of eating and, and he applies it to himself. You know how you eat food every day to survive? Well, you must feed on me if you want to live. I am the bread of life. So every day when we eat, we're to be reminded that we're not sustained just by the bread that we eat. What we're doing now is, is a picture uh, of the gospel, of how we feed ourselves on the Lord Jesus. And so the meal table becomes our teacher. And every time we sit and eat, we're reminded of the right response to the gospel story. It's to pull up a chair and, and feed on the bread of life to receive him. And although we're not all married, there's a similar way in which marriage is meant to be a window through which we can see the gospel story. Food is God's idea. Marriage is God's good plan. Sex is by God's good design. It's made by him and it's to be received from him in the way that he's told us to receive it. So that's why we, we get there at the end, verse 5. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. When we receive God's good gifts in the way that he's shown us to receive them in his word, prayerfully giving thanks to him, they become acts of worship. Eating can be a way that we grow in godliness because we remember our Lord Jesus and what he's done. So the good creation, it just becomes currency in a way through which we can worship and display the worthiness, worthiness of, our, of our God. One author writes this, everything God made is good, and everything is for the sake of worship and love. All of creation we can use to, to show the worth of our God. But now these false teachers have brought in this idea into the church that in order to be spiritual, you must reject God's good creation. So they've made godliness a matter of not receiving, but rejecting. That hides the truth about God, doesn't it? It hides the fundamentals that God is a gracious and generous God. And that we must receive life from him. Receiving his son who came in the flesh to be bread for us. 
So false religion is dangerous because it hides the truth about God. And that's just one example. You might want to think what happens when we try to merge the gospel with, say, materialism. Or what happens when we try to merge the gospel with a kind of philosophy that says we must pursue happiness and self-fulfillment. The truth about God gets obscured. So false religion is dangerous because it hides the truth about God. And false religion is also dangerous because it leads people away from faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. False, false religion leads people away from trusting Jesus. That's why it's deadly. The essence, the heart of the Christian life is, is faith and confidence in our Lord Jesus. That's what it's all about. The one who appeared in the flesh, who was vindicated by the Spirit, who was seen by angels, who was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. But it's so easy for us as Christians and as churches to move from that central focus. So just remind us this evening that true godliness, it's not about spiritual techniques. It's not about following rules and prohibitions. It's about receiving and knowing and loving Jesus Christ. And our last song that we're going to sing together this evening is going to remind us all about that. It's a great song that reminds us that every Every part of our Christian walk, it's Christ. <laughs> it's Christ. So our final song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ.